And we're thinking on verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3 of Romans, where we read, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth should be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Uh, we are coming up to the time of year when uh, they begin to show all the old classic films over and over again as we get near to Christmas. Um, in the age of, of Netflix, it's not such a, a, a great hassle to have Where He Goes There and uh, The Morecambe and Wise Show and all the, the old ones repeated over and over again. And in any case, most of them are, are pretty in, innocuous and can stand uh, being watched again. Uh, but there is one of them which, of all of the films which is repeated at this time of year, uh, is the most dangerous and subversive. And that, of course, is... The Sound of Music. Because in The Sound of Music, uh, there is a song with lyrics which are profoundly unhelpful, which are actually, uh, if we're pressed, a lie from hell itself. And you're wondering what I'm referring to. <laughs> and it's a song, uh, Something Good. You know, when... Uh, Maria and the captain are, are, are falling for one another. And uh, Maria sings these words. Perhaps I had a wicked childhood. Perhaps I had a miserable youth. But somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, I must have had a moment of truth. For here you are, standing there, loving me, whether or not you should. So... Somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Do you see why that is so subversive? That is, in Eastern theology, the law of karma. You know, what we, what we have now is the result of accumulated merits in the past. Or in the Bible, it's the law of of works righteousness. Things are working out for Maria. She's got the man of her dreams standing in front of her. Therefore, why is it working out for her? Because somewhere in her youth or childhood, there must have been something good. It's the only explanation. Now, Paul has been laboring over the last chapters to completely destroy that way of thinking. That is not the way things are. And when we stand before God on the day of judgment, uh, something in my youth or childhood that must have been good is not going to stand uh, as my defense before God. We're not going to be okay because in our past there was something good. Paul has been relentlessly undermining this. We were thinking different ways of it being a building, you know, this building of works righteousness, 
uh, in different ways. People who had different excuses why, why they'd be okay on, on the day of judgment, why they didn't need a righteousness from God. And we thought of it as this building and the, the uh, demolition ball coming, hammering away, 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 relentlessly pounding on the building. And little voices of, of uh, complaint and excuse being made and Paul answering them. But I think it's maybe more helpful now to think of it in terms of a law court. And Paul is the, the counsel for the prosecution. And he's coming uh, to the close of his argument. Uh, in the course of his argument, he's been looking at the, the pagan uh, whose excuses, well, he didn't know. He didn't have a Bible. Missionaries didn't get to me. And Paul has shown how they are still accountable because of creation and the testimony within. And then there was the pagan moralist who thought, uh, as many do, you know, you don't need to be religious. Uh, you don't need to be re religious to be good. And Paul exploded that argument. And then more extensively, there was the Jew who claimed that unless he was in a special category, then all of the promises in the Old Testament and all of the, the rituals like circumcision didn't count for anything. The first eight verses of chapter eight, uh, Paul's been dealing with some potential objections from Jewish people. And then uh, in the verses from nine to 18 that uh, David preached on last time, there are a series of quotations from the Old Testament which show that no one can say that they are good, that there is no one who does good. There's no one who has a righteousness of their own. So that all of us are in the same boat. And now the prosecution comes to, as it were, a summing up. And there are four points in his summing up. First of all, everyone in the world, including the Jews, is guilty before God. That's the first point in the summing up. Secondly, the right response to being shown this is to be silent before God. Thirdly, it's impossible to establish a righteous verdict by relying on good works. Can't be done. And fourthly, the law is designed not to, sh to show that you're righteous, but to show that you're not righteous. Four points. Everyone in the world is guilty. If that's the case, remain silent. You can't get a righteous verdict by your good works. The law wasn't intended for that. It's intended to show up your need of righteousness. Now, Paul says, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Okay, a wee bit of explanation uh, in two places here. First of all, the expression under the law, under the law. It's repeated in Romans 6, verse 14. Uh, and there it's contrasted with being under grace. So you're either under the law or you're under grace, right? So you're either striving to get right with God by the works of the law or you're living by grace. And that's not the way it's being used here. Uh, it's more, the, the more literal way of putting it would be uh, those who are in the law or in the orbit of the law. So it's saying those uh, who are operating in the 
environment of God's law. And who are they? Well, they're the Jews. They're the Jews who had the law. So Paul is referring to the Jews here and he's nailing down the fact that for uh, all their privileges, uh, they are not exempt from the judgment of God. In fact, having the law is an awesome responsibility. The law isn't to be used for condemning outsiders. It's speaking to those who have the law. Now, the other thing to notice is that Paul isn't simply restricting the term law to the commandments or even to the ceremonial law because the context here is what's gone before and that includes the Psalms and the, the, the prophets. So I think here the law refers to the Old Testament revelation and those who have the Old Testament revelation are being addressed or spoken to by it and therefore they're accountable uh, for having the scriptures. So Paul's point is that having the, the word of God is a responsibility because it's speaking to you. It's not speaking to those that don't have it. It's addressing you and it makes you accountable. God doesn't give you that Bible so that you can use your Bible to point the finger at other people who don't have the Bible. It's addressing you. Now, this is very practical because uh, when we... When we uh, begin to show an interest in spiritual things and we're still not converted when we're on the fringe of the church very easy to be self-righteous and to think oh I've got a little bit of knowledge here and, and you know, I know the Bible not too badly and I, I begin to judge other people rather than allowing the word of God to judge me and it's those who are under the law or in the law that the Bible's speaking to and is making them accountable before God. So the conclusion, therefore, is that the whole world is accountable because Jews are in. They're not out. They're not exempt. They are in as well. The whole world is accountable before God. There is not a single person who can wriggle out of this, who can say, oh, judgment's all right, but it doesn't apply to me. I'm a special case. The whole world is accountable to God. Everybody, every person is in big trouble because of this reality. Every person in the world is in the same position before God. The checkout lady at the supermarket, the hospital consultant doing his rounds in the wards, the TV personality, and the woman from Romania selling the big issue, they are in the same boat, all accountable before God. No difference. Secondly, the proper attitude with which to come before God, if this is the case, is silent acceptance of his verdict. Now, verse 19 uh, has got a powerful image of, of the defendant being brought before the, the prosecutor. Verse 19, so that every mouth may be silenced. And the whole world held accountable to God. Now, remember, it's a courtroom scene. And we had this flagged up back in chapter 1, verse 20, where Paul says, all the world is without excuse. And back then, we said that this term, being without excuse, 
is that uh, we are, pardon me, a defence without an argument. We have no defence to make for ourselves. We've got nothing to say. There's no argument to muster before the court. And now Paul is talking of, of us here in, in verse 19, standing before God, the trial has begun and we've got no argument. We have nothing to say for ourselves. There is no defense for what we have done. We have been convicted of the crime. We are standing before the bar of judgment. We are awaiting sentence. And the law proclaims the fact that every mouth will be silent because there is no defense to be made. All will be speechless before God as we await the sentencing. So what's this saying? It's saying if we're going to be saved, we're going to have our mouth shut first. We're going to stop pleading our excuses. You know how prone we are to minimizing our sins and saying, well, it was kind of understandable that my life turned out like this. If you knew the kind of upbringing I've had, if you knew what it was to have abusive parents or to, to have grown up uh, in a home of alcoholism, uh, if you knew how badly I was provoked before I did that, you know, we're so prone to excuse ourselves. The evangelist uh, D.L. Moody uh, was visiting a famous prison in New York once called the Tombs. And uh, when he went in, he thought that they would all be gathered together in a prison chapel so he could preach to them collectively. But when he went there, they were all in, in their cells, individually in their cells. And so he had to, to, uh, to preach sitting on a on a brick wall and didn't know if, if they were all hearing him or paying any attention to what he was saying. And he felt convicted afterwards that uh, he should go and, and uh, make personal contact with each one. So he did. And uh, he would ask one after the other, oh, how is it with you? And each one after another began to say how it was that they shouldn't be there. So uh, one of them uh, would say, well, uh, we got into bad company. The men uh, that did the deed got clear. We got caught. Someone else said that a man had testified falsely against him uh, in the trial, and so he ended up in prison. Third man claimed that there had been a, a, a case of mistaken identity. There was somebody who looked very like him, and he had got away clean, and here he was in prison. And so one after another, there were all of these hard luck stories. And, and Moody concluded, I never found so many innocent men. They were all innocent. I found a great many innocent men under lock and key. And they were all trying to justify themselves. There was no one guilty except for the constables, the justices or magistrates. They were the guilty ones. And feeling discouraged, he went on a little bit longer and he could hear the sound of sobbing from one cell and went to the cell and there was a man with his, his elbows on his knees and his hands, his head in his hands and he was physically weeping and he was weeping over his sins and 
Moody went over to him, and the man said to him, My sins, sir, are more than I can bear. Thank God for that, Moody said. Thank God for that, the man replied. Isn't you the man that has been preaching to us? Yes, sir. And yet I thought that you said that you were a friend of the prisoner, and you're glad that my sins are more than I can bear. Yes. Yes? Then you're a queer kind of friend, he said. How is it that you're glad my sins are more than I can bear? I'm glad that they are more than you can bear, for if they are more than you can bear, you can cast them on the Lord Jesus. He will not bear my sins, the man said. I am the worst man living today. And he began to list all the things that he had wrong and why it was a load uh, that he couldn't bear. But he kept on and he said that if this man would pray to the Lord, he himself, Moody would be praying for him at night in his hotel room and he would visit him the next day. And the next day uh, he did and the man, man's face was filled with joy. He had come before the judge with no excuses. He had believed in Jesus and his burden had been rolled away. If we make excuses before God, if when God's searchlight is shining on us and we begin to explain away our circumstances and our sins, we're only playing at Christianity. We're still thinking about something in our past that must have been good, like Maria. We're still thinking in a works righteousness kind of way. And you can't be saved if you're relying even the slightest on something good in your life, in your past. Go through the Bible. The Bible's full of, of holy men who, when they came into the presence of God, their mouths were shut. We were thinking of one this morning, we are thinking of Isaiah, and he came into God's presence and he's aware that he has unclean lips. Habakkuk has a vision of God and uh, his mouth is shut in the presence of God. Think of John and Patmos seeing a vision of Jesus and he falls as one dead before Christ. So long as we have uh, the least reliance on ourselves so that we want to make excuses for our lives when we want to explain away things, then we're deluding ourselves. But when the Holy Spirit is really at work in our life, our mouths are shut. We are silent before God. We know we have no defense to make. We're submissive to the judgment. We accept the judgment. And we're helpless to do anything but cast ourselves on God's mercy. Imagine what an offense it is to God that we should try to, to minimize our sin. When our sin is against God, when we have spurned his love, when we've lived in independence against him, uh, remember David would say, against you, you only have I sinned. How, how pathetic, how ignorant, how scornful of God's glory it is when we minimize it. Uh, imagine this scenario, I don't know how helpful this is, but imagine uh, 
uh, a jihadist who has killed the, the, the only son of someone uh, in Syria. And uh, he's wounded in, in, a, in, a, in a battle and is left behind. He staggers into the home of the father of the, the son that he had killed. The father says to him, why should I spare you? Why should I not just cast you out into the, the crowd outside to be torn apart? And the man begins to explain away why he did it. He said, I was under pressure to do it. Uh, I didn't know any better. I was just obeying orders. It's not what the father's looking for. The father's looking for a candid, a free admission that this was a, a heinous crime that was committed. A dreadful murder that has robbed him of his only son. When the late Martin Lloyd-Jones was commenting on this verse, he wrote, Paul now points out that when you realize what the law is truly saying to you, the result is that every mouth shall be stopped. You are rendered speechless. You're not a Christian unless you've been made speechless. How do you know whether you're a Christian or not? It's that you stop talking. The trouble with the non-Christian is that he goes on talking. How do you know whether a man is a Christian? The answer is his mouth is shut. He goes on, I like this forthrightness of the gospel. People need to have their mouth shut, stopped. You do not begin to be a Christian until your mouth is shut, is stopped, and you are speechless and have nothing to say. And so there is that, that indefinable quality in the Christian. And you, you recognize it. That uh, they are those uh, who have acknowledged their sin. The, 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 their proud, self-sufficient heart uh, has been humbled. The, the arrogance that, that would naturally have sprung up and made an excuse, made a defense, is no longer there because they know what it is to have been silent before the God with whom we have to do. Verse 20 now sums up the whole situation. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Uh, actually, it's probably more correctly because uh, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Uh, the reason everyone will be silent before God is that no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. The reason that we'll be silent is that uh, all the good that we could do, all of the, the trying to keep the commandments in our own strength, observing circumcision, ceremonial law, uh, even that cannot give anyone, not the Jew, not us as Gentiles, the, the right standing <coughs> that we need before God. Now, you might remember back in chapter 2, verse 13, Paul had said that it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And here he says, no one will be declared righteous by keeping the law. So is that a contradiction? Well, this is the word of God, so it doesn't contradict itself. Uh, Paul is saying that were it possible to observe the law perfectly, 
someone would be declared righteous. But the reality is, no one except the Lord Jesus has ever kept the law, and therefore no one will be declared righteous by keeping the law. Paul has shown that not the pagan, not the moralist, not the Jew, no one keeps the law. Now, when, when we say this, people often object, well, aren't there, you know, aren't there people in the world who are good and kind? Doesn't that count for something before God? Think of, think of a pirate ship, think of a, a sailing ship uh, manned by pirates, okay. pirates of the, of the high seas, going about uh, taking treasure from, from other cargo ships. On this ship, the pirates get along really well with one another. They have their own uh, code of honour. They look out for one another. Uh, if any of them is attacked by someone from another ship, uh, they will go to defend that person. Uh, they stand up for the honour of the ship. There's a, a close bond between them all. And to an extent, uh, they have a kind of piracy code of honesty even on the ship. All of these things are, in one sense, good. They are, they are good acts of kindness. They're good acts of loyalty. Uh, good acts of honesty, even. But in another sense, they're all bad because the way they are organized on this pirate ship is to be an effective organization at breaking the law, breaking the law of the high seas. It's all working together to do bad. Similarly, you can think of the mafia. Think of how the mafia in the States organize themselves. They often show, well, they, they, they show very strong family loyalties. Uh, there's uh, a real desire that uh, members of the family should, should get on, and when there's a wedding, that it'll be with the, the, the right person for uh, the the, the, the son in the family, and so on. They have their own code of ethics, the mafia code of ethics. <laughs> These things are good, of course. It's good to honour the family and good to look out for one another. But again, they're organised in order to uh, extract money from uh, racketeering, from prostitution and gambling and so on. And the point is that even when we do good deeds, if we are not doing them for the Lord, uh, even our, our best deeds can't be considered. They're good in one sense, but in another sense, what are they doing? They're, they're promoting our self-righteousness, our conceit. Uh, they serve self-interest in different ways. So actually, although they're good in one sense, they're filthy rags before God. By the works of the law, no one will be justified. But the law has an important function for us. It has an, an important function when we're Christians, obviously. Uh, it shows us the form of how our gratitude to God should take shape. But does it have a function for us before we become Christians? Because if we can't try to keep the law to be justified, well, 
What's the point of the law for someone who's not yet a Christian? Paul says it shows us our sin. It shows us our sin. J.B. Phillips um, has got one of these paraphrases which are often really good to, to look at, you know, just to, to get another perspective to, to, uh, to see somebody uh, who is good with words trying to bring out the meaning of, of a passage. And he paraphrases uh, the verse like this. No man can justify himself before God by a perfect performance of the law's demands. Indeed, it is the straight edge of the law that shows how crooked we are. You see? The, the law is like a, a straight edge. Absolutely straight as a die. And it shows up the crookedness of our lives. Okay? Uh, sin is, a, is a, an inner crookedness. And the law shows that up. It reveals that we have deviated from God's straight line. Uh, J.B. Phillips could have said that the law is like a, a mirror. That we, we look into the mirror and we see that we, we are besmirched with dirt. You know, you think you're presentable. You're going to go out, outside and you look in the, the mirror and you see there's a bit of jam donut still in your beard or whatever. It shows your imperfection. And the law is like that. It shows up the, the nature of sin. It reveals it. We go on deluding ourselves that somewhere in our youth we must have done something good. And that that's going to stand for us at the end of time. And the law says, no. Your goods are like filthy rags. And we're silent before God. And there was, of course, a man who was silent uh, before his accusers. Who had every right to speak. And to argue his case. And to vindicate himself. And Jesus was taken before his accusers. And Isaiah says, like a lamb before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And he remained silent. That he might bear all the sin of his people. All the sordid accusations <coughs> fell upon him. That when we stand before the judge, having been silenced and coming to faith in Christ, we might be acquitted. Always in the course of, of Christianity Explored, there's a, a time when uh, participants are, are asked a question. And it's a, very, it's a very revealing question. If you were to die tonight and were to appear before God, and he asked you, why should I allow you into my heaven? What would you say? Think about that for a second or two. It's always very interesting uh, reading people's responses to that. Very often uh, folks will want to, to give uh, a rationale, a, a justification, uh, which has to do with themselves why they should enter into heaven. Uh, whether it's sincerity or having done their best, or some new insights that they've had. And the word is telling us that we've got nothing to say in our defense. Silent before God. 
our only hope is in one who remained silent when he could have spoken in Jesus. He has righteousness to give us that we lack in ourselves. And when we have faith in him, he clothes us with the righteousness that we lack. The lack of righteousness which the law declares to us. And he fits us for his heaven. May God bless to us the preaching of his holy word.